and invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. So Matthew 12 is where we're going to be today. And welcome to week 11 of our miracle series where we are walking through the miracles of Christ. True and powerful stories, as we've been saying, that aren't just meant to blow our minds, although they should. They're also meant to comfort our hearts and they're meant to reveal something to us. And the reality is they're revealing to us who Christ is, that he is God. And this morning, I want us to see a story and then a corresponding miracle that shows Jesus to be the Lord of the Sabbath and uh, all that that entails. And yet I want to begin with a picture before we look at rest. I want us to look at work and kind of a question concerning our work. Why do we work? Or a better question is this. What is the significance of our work? So what's the reason? What's the significance of our work? Think of it like this. If the purpose of our work is achievement, then our work will become our identity. It becomes who we are. Or if the purpose of our work is accumulation, then we work so that we can get more and more and more stuff. If the purpose of our work is to make the world a better place, then um, our work can become a religion in and of itself or maybe even an, an idol or if the purpose of our work is to glorify God then um, we have a divine purpose yet our work is not ultimate um, God's glory remains the ultimate uh, picture there so what does what story does our work tell who's at the center of what we do and here's what I know um, about today's world many jobs that we have today can demand a whole lot from us. Can I get an amen from anybody? Amen. So our jobs can be very demanding, and some might even feel imprisoned by um, their, their jobs. I, I found this on the internet, and I'm just going to go for it and see how it happens. But um, in prison, you spend the majority of your time in a 10 by 10 um, cell. At work, you spend the majority of your time in an 8 by 8 cubicle. In prison, you get three free meals a day. At work, you get one break, and you have to buy your own meal. In prison, you get time off for good behavior. At work, you get more work loaded on for good behavior. Anybody ever been there? Uh, in prison, you get your own toilet. At work, you have to share the toilet with people who pee all over the seat. Don't be that person. Um, <laughs> in prison, you spend uh, most of your life behind bars wanting to get out. At work, you spend most of your time wanting to get out so you can go to the bar. Don't be that person either. In prison, um, you must deal with sadistic wardens. And at work, those wardens are called bosses. There we go. So we all know this picture. And granted, I've never been to prison, at least that you know of. Um, so I'm just going to stick by what I have seen on TV. But here's what we, what we know. According to the Word of God, we are commanded to work. Not just in Genesis, but in the New Testament. We're commanded to work. 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul says, If you do not work, you should not eat. So there was a, a picture of people that were um, kind of taking advantage of the system. And Paul came along and said, You need to work. Don't be a busybody. Don't be idle. Get to work. But in the same breath, we are also created by God to rest. Even commanded by God to rest. And this might seem weird to some of us because think about this. When we start reading at Genesis 1, we read through the Bible, we get to Exodus 20. We get to the Ten Commandments and a bulk of them make a lot of sense to us, right? Don't make things gods that aren't gods because if you make things gods that aren't gods, they will not be able to 
hold your weight and they will collapse under your weight and they will hurt you and hurt others. So if you make your spouse your God, if you make money your God or your job your God or your children your God or other things or politics your God, on and on we can go. But the picture is very clear. If you make something a God that is not God, it will be unable to hold your weight. It will collapse. It will betray you and it will destroy you so we get the second commandment right we get that picture don't make something god that's not god and then think about the first commandment have no other god before me i mean if god is who he says he is who the word says he is then we get that one too that makes sense don't have any other gods before me the third commandment be careful with god's name we must not misuse god's name for unauthorized purposes or to put it in terms that we can relate to god has a copyright on his name don't use his name for unauthorized purposes. That should make sense to us. Do not murder. That should make sense to us for the most part. Don't be a liar. Do not steal. Okay, we, we get it. Um, leave your neighbor's wife alone. He means that. Um, learn to be content where you are. God means that too. Those things kind of make sense. So when we read through the Ten Commandments, we're kind of going... Yeah, I can see where God would be concerned with that. I can see where God would desire that. I can see where God would, would want that. And we begin to go, well, yeah, those are good things that God would give to us. And then there's one command that kind of stands out as a little peculiar in regards to why God would be concerned with, with this and why he, or why he wouldn't be concerned with, with this area. And most of the, the commands that we, we look at in the Ten Commandments are great ethical Themes And then God says for the fourth commandment, for six days you will work. On the seventh, on the seventh you won't. Not just you, your sons, your daughters, your um, servants, your animals. No one is going to work. And then it says this. God says, because I created the world in six days, on the seventh I rested. And that last declaration has some theological problems to it because God does not ever get tired. God never gets tired. And yet we're told that God rested. So God, who didn't need to rest, rested. And so the idea of the Sabbath is strange to us because it seems like God is trying to control our weekend. We only get a couple days and it seems like God is trying to, to take over. So we begin to go, what in the world is going on? And then you begin to read through from Exodus 20, continue to read, and God gets very aggressive in this area. In Leviticus 23, God literally tells his people, if you will not stop, if you will not rest, I will destroy you. God tells them that. And then in Numbers 15, a man is picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Hear it again. He's picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And what happens to him? He dies. He is stoned because of his sin against God. So think about this. There's obviously a seriousness related to the Sabbath that we can't wrap our minds around. Ultimately, what we know is that mankind is made in the image of God. God, in creating all things, rested. Therefore, we are called to rest. God blessed the Sabbath and said and declared it to be holy. The word holy means set apart. Think of it like this. The people of God are called to be holy, set apart. The temple was holy. The tabernacle was holy, set apart. The, the furnishings and the... Um, utensils in the, the, that were to be used in worship were holy and set apart. The priests and the workers of the temple were to be set apart. And the Sabbath was 
holy unto the Lord. One of the first things that God declares to be holy is a simple day of the week, the Sabbath. A hollow 24 hours that's supposed to recenter our life and kind of recenter the rhythm of our lives. And let me, let me make a statement that shouldn't catch us off guard. Time is not neutral. None of us, time is not neutral or a neutral resource for any of us. Let me preach at you for just a second. Or maybe it's just my own little tangent. Let me go off on my own little tangent for just a second. Let me, let me say that. Um, I, I ne- it, it never ceases that, you know, Anytime I go to the store, I get in line. Um, there's a, a long line. You know, my human nature is like, hey, there's 15 other places that should be open, but they're not, but I'm sitting in this one. And then there's always that one person that comes up from behind the line, the last person. They go, man, why can't they open more lines? We've got places to go. We've got... Don't be that person. Don't be that person. Because I always want to say, I always want to just turn around and go, listen, my time is just as valuable as yours is. All of our time is not neutral. It's all valuable. And some people try to make their time more valuable. Now, all of our time is valuable. It's not a neutral resource. And the the way that we use our time expresses what we believe um, uh, about God. It expresses um, where we place our hope in, whether we're trusting in the Lord or or not. And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of what God was doing, the Sabbath became a prison where it became... You can do this, don't do this, definitely don't do this, don't go there ever, which means the Sabbath became a burden instead of being a blessing. I mean, think of it like this. If you work seven days a week under the hot sun to provide for your family with scarcely any time um, for leisure, any time um, to spend with them, would it be a burden for someone to come to you who had omnipotent authority over your life and all life, and for that someone to say to you, I don't want you to have to work so much. I want you to have a day of rest and enjoy what really matters in life, and I promise to meet your needs with the six days that you get to work. Here's the question. Is that a cruel command or is that a blessing? I mean, that's, that's not a cruel command. We don't look at that omnipotent power and go, how dare you? How dare you try to invade my life and give me rest? How, how dare you do it? No, that's a blessing for us. Yet, this blessing became a burden because it was put in the hands of man. And it was in this burdensome system that Jesus entered the scene and turned everything upside down. Or I say that, but really he turned everything right side up. Because everything he did, Jesus turned everything right side up. up. So let's look at the word um, together this morning. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word together. So Matthew chapter 12 verses 1 through 14 and it says this, at that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest and the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? 
He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. We come before your holy word. We thank you for it. Just lead us by your spirit into it. Just open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. Speak, Lord, for we are listening. Help us to obey. Show us what true rest looks like. And help us to find it in you. For that is the only place we, it can be found. Have your way in this time, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So just a little recap. So for, for the Jew, the Sabbath was Saturday. It was the seventh day of the week. On this day, the people rested from work. The Sabbath was a day to remember how much God loved them, a day for them to remember how God had rescued them from the land of Egypt. But before we dive into our, our truths today, I, I'm gonna, I want to muddy the waters just a little bit. I want to muddy the water so that I pray in the end I can bring some clarity. Um, if not, then it's all my fault. But I want to muddy it and then hopefully bring some clarity. So here, here's the muddying the waters part. Of the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20, nine of them are restated in the New Testament. The only one that is not reaffirmed in the New Testament is the command concerning the Sabbath. Now, Jesus upheld the Sabbath. His disciples upheld the Sabbath. The church upheld, in a sense, the, the Sabbath. But instead of all this, Jesus proclaimed himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. John MacArthur takes us even more in depth here when he says this. The Sabbath is the only one of the Ten Commandments that is purely ceremonial. And it was unique to the Old Covenant and to Israel. The other nine commandments pertain to moral and spiritual absolutes and are repeated and expanded upon many places in the New Testament. But Sabbath observance is never recommended to Christians, much less given as a command in the New Testament. The Sabbath purpose was purely symbolic. Hear this. In the same way that the blood sacrifices symbolize the atonement Christ made on the cross, the Sabbath system symbolized the true rest and true worship for the people of God to be found through the Messiah. And I tackle this subject this morning with a lot of trepidation because there has been so much misunderstanding and misinterpretation when it comes to this subject, both then and now. You know, I think of then. In Jesus' day, there were two fanatical um, religious groups that struggled for supremacy. They were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. For lack of better terms, they were the, the liberals and the conservatives. The Sadducees did not believe in angels. They did not believe in the resurrection. We call that um, liberal theology. Um, the, the Pharisees believed in the Word of God, and yet they also believed in everything else they could add to it. I mean, they believed in everything. If, it, if they thought it got them to God, they believed in it, and they grabbed a hold of it. They created more rules in their minds to make them more and more godly. In fact, um, for the Sabbath, Jewish scholars created, get this, 
39 separate categories of what work meant. And within those 39 separate categories, there were many subcategories. Basically, there were literally thousands of rules to follow including how many steps you could take on the Sabbath, how many letters you could write on the Sabbath. I mean, all of these things. So do you know what the Sabbath became under man's interpretation? It became a burden. It became an absolute burden. That which was supposed to be a beautiful gift became a cruel, never-ending burden when left in the hands of man. And let me just say this. A work-based system is devastating to spiritual rest. Let me say that again. A works-based system is devastating to spiritual rest. You will never be able to find rest when you're trying to work in order to earn your way. So Jesus came along, and get this, he paid absolutely no attention to any of that man-made stuff. He came along and said, yeah, I know you got your laws, and I could care less about them because I'm only here to please one. And so he lived his life under the law of God, not under the laws of man, and they hated him because of it. In fact, it became the the final act that crystallized their rejection of him. So what I want to do in the time that we have this morning is look at and kind of dive into three truths related to Jesus as the Lord of the Sabbath. And I've called this this message kind of uncovering the hidden hidden things because we're going to see some things that maybe you've never seen um, before. That's what I pray for um, anyway as we bring some clarity in the end. But the first truth I want us to see is this. Truth number one, Jesus is Lord over all interpretations. Jesus is Lord over all interpretations. And I'll explain that in just a second. According to verse 1, Jesus went through the grain fields with the disciples. And it says that they were hungry and they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. Now, according to Deuteronomy 23, 25, the Mosaic law actually permitted someone, an Israelite, to do what the disciples were doing. So what we know is that the law was given so that God's people would be able to draw near to God. Yet the Pharisees had now used the law Get this, the law that was supposed to be fulfilled in Christ, and they used that to actually reject the one that fulfilled it. So the law was fulfilled in Christ, and they used the law to reject the one who would fulfill the law. So what does Jesus do? He uses Scripture, and he begins to show them that their interpretations, their applications were completely wrong. Jesus reminds them of a story, the story of David in 1 Samuel 21. And where David entered in and needed food and got the food from the, the tabernacle. He was not supposed to eat it, but yet it was given to him and he ate and his, his men. And then Jesus said, and what about the priests? Remember, they work on the Sabbath. They continually work um, seven days a week. The point that Jesus was making is this. David ate, even though it was unlawful, according to the, the Pharisees' interpretation of the law, yet the Old Testament never condemned David. The Old Testament didn't condemn him. In fact, the priests had to work every Sabbath, yet the Old Testament did not condemn them for their work. In both cases, Jesus is trying to show them that the Lord who gave the law has the right to interpret the law. Let me say it again. The one who gave the law has the right to interpret it. And what Jesus is saying is this. One who is greater than David and one who is greater than the temple is in your midst. And Jesus sums it all up in verse 8 by saying, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Gospel of Mark in in chapter 2, 27, he he said um, the Sabbath was made 
for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then again, the Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. And what that means is this. Please hear this. We don't get to interpret the word to mean what we want it to mean. We don't get that privilege. We don't get to take the word of God and make it mean what we want it to mean. We don't get to add to the word of God to make it say things that we agree with, that agrees with our views of church or our group, our preferences of worship. We do not get to shape the word of God into our image. We don't get to do that. Interpretation, get this, does not belong to us. It belongs to him. And hear this. The Holy Spirit meant then when he gave these words to human vessels what he means now. So if you want to know what God, God doesn't change, his meaning doesn't change. When you come to Christ, you don't get a decoder, a decoder ring and you read the Bible and you have to decode it for the 21st century. In the next century, there'll be a new decoder ring for that century. That's not how it works. What the Holy Spirit meant then he means now. Let me just give you a, quick, a clear picture of interpretation versus application. I hear so many people say things like, well, I read this verse, but I, I really, to me, it means this. And let me just stop there and say this. I could care less what you think the Bible means. It doesn't, I could care less what you think it means. Listen, our opinion concerning what the word of God means is nothing. It doesn't matter what you think it means. What matters is what does God mean? That's the only thing that matters. Not what we mean. What did God mean when he wrote this? What did God mean when he gave these words? So what God meant then, he means now. God has not changed his mind. God has not softened his stance. Um, God has not continued to reach out to us. That is interpretation. But now application is where it gets good for us. Because although the interpretation does not change, the application when we read the Bible, I can read a verse today. And see it, interpretation come to life um, in my life. And then I can apply it for that day and the things that are going on. And then, by the grace of God, the goodness of God, I can read that same verse tomorrow with a different set of circumstances. And that verse can be applied in a different way. This is the beauty and the power of the Word of God. Don't miss this. Here's the problem. I hear people all the time say, well, I just can't understand it. Well, let me, here's a good place to start. Start with what you can understand and do that. Start with there. Start, if you can only stand, understand three things, start with those three things and do them. And then as you do them, guess what's going to happen? God's going to let you understand a little more and a little more and a little more. Or I hear people say, well, I don't read the Bible because it contradicts itself. Let me be very clear here. This book does not contradict itself. It contradicts you and it contradicts me. And that's why we want to stay away from it, because it contradicts us. I mean, people that can read this book and say, I, I'm not convicted by anything, they're reading it with their own idolatrous mind. And I read this book, and sometimes I have to shut it because I don't like what I'm reading. Sometimes I just have to close it and step back and say, God, help me. Help me, because this is ripping me apart. And then I have to pray, and then I have to open it back up and come back at it with a little bit sense of humility because God has taken me and, and brought me down to size. And I praise God for that. But Jesus is Lord over all interpretation. He, he knows the heart and mind of God forever, for he is God. So Jesus is Lord over all interpretation. But then secondly, Jesus is Lord over sin's devastation. He's Lord over sin's devastation. In verse 9, we're told that Jesus entered um, the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And as we saw last week, in a broad sense, and let me just be very clear here, in a broad sense, all sickness, 
all disabilities, all um, the limitations that come with our physical body are a result of sin. So in a broad sense, all of those things are a result of sin. As we saw last week, sin's devastation leaves us spiritually blind and it leaves us having to deal with all the earthly consequences that come with living in a sinful world. And here we see both sides of this. We see a man that was physically physically hampered um, with a physically withered hand. And then we see the Pharisees whose hearts were hardened to Christ, whose eyes were blinded to him. And then get this, it gets worse. We're told that the Pharisees used a crippled man as a prop in order to try to trap Jesus. I mean, what does that say about their religion, that they're using a person as a prop in order to find some way to accuse Christ? And they come to Jesus and they ask him a question. They say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then in verse 11, Jesus answered their question with a question. Now, let me just give you a little heads up here. God is not afraid of our questions. He's not. If we come to God with with faith and humility of heart, God is not afraid of our questions. But be careful because when we question God, we open ourselves up to also be questioned by God. You know, we see that in the book of Job, and we see that here. When you begin to question things, we open ourselves up now to be questioned by God. And something happens. When God questioned Job, Job just he closed his mouth. When Jesus questioned the Pharisees, same thing. They closed their mouth. So Jesus asked them a question. In verse 11, he says, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? And just listen to the sinfulness of their religion. Basically, the Pharisees were willing to bend their own law in order to save an animal, but they were not willing to permit healing to someone who was made in the image of God. Now, hear this. If your religious beliefs, if, if those things that you believe lifts, lifts up your thoughts, your ideas, and your preferences over the spiritual needs of man, then your religion is defective. Let me say that again. If your beliefs lifts up your ideas, your thoughts, um, your preferences over the lostness of man, then your religion is defective. Or say it in a different way. If you care more about what you want out of a church than the fact that there are people dying and going to hell, then your religion is defective. It's defective. Why? Because it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about Him. It's always been about Him. And then think about this question. Did Jesus, did He break the Mosaic Law on what He did? Of course not. He didn't break the law. In fact, the law said it was more important to demonstrate compassion than sacrifice. Look at what Jesus said in verse 7. Jesus said, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Basically, compassion for people should trump our rituals. Hear that again. Compassion for people should trump our rituals. If, listen, if we ever come to church and we know there's a needs around us and we pass needs of hurting people and I were to say, guys, it's, I think it's more important right now for us to be the church than to just sit here and do church. And some of us might say, well, no, 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 no. Our ritual says this compassion for people should trump rituals without a doubt should do it. And then look at verse 13. 
Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored. By faith, this man followed Christ's instruction and he reached out and was restored. He wasn't partially restored. He wasn't temporarily restored. He was wholly and completely restored. And that word restored, there doesn't just mean physically. It doesn't just mean just a physical. It means that there was a complete release from bondage. So there was something that took place physically in this man's life, but there was also something that took place spiritually in this man's life. Jesus gave this man a command and he responded to it in faith. And as we've been saying from the beginning of this series, sometimes we have to do the natural so that God can do the supernatural. Let me say it again. Sometimes we have to do the natural. If God says, get up and walk, we have to be willing to walk. If God says, get up and go there, we have to be willing to go there to see the supernatural come about. Now think about this miracle. This miracle seems so insignificant compared to the other miracles we looked at, right? And we've seen Jesus stilling the storm. We've seen Jesus rising from the dead. We've seen um, lame healed, the blind healed. I mean, all these things that we see, and then now we see a withered hand. And that seems so insignificant. But let me say this. It wasn't insignificant to that man. It wasn't insignificant to him. And sometimes we let Satan convince us that what God has done in our lives is insignificant. If God has saved you from your sin, there's nothing insignificant about you. There's nothing insignificant about that, about what God has done. Just think about the heart of Christ here and then place the heart of Christ alongside the heart of religion and the heart of the Pharisees. And here, here's the thing that makes me laugh. Look at, look at verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. I don't know if you know this. The word destroy basically means kill. And here's, if you want to know about religion, this sums it all up. The Pharisees are upset at Jesus because in their mind he broke the fourth commandment while at the same time they are together trying to break the sixth commandment by killing Jesus. That tells you everything you need to know about religion. That tells you everything you need to know about religion. They're here saying, how dare he do this, all the while being okay with committing murder, breaking the sixth commandment, trying to to, um, frame him, so to speak. Just think about this picture. Not only was Jesus Lord over a man with a withered hand, he was also Lord over a man or men with with hardened hearts. And he, he exposed them for who they were. So Jesus is Lord over all interpretations. He's Lord over sin's devastation. And then lastly, and this is the good news for us, Jesus is Lord over our salvation. He's Lord over our salvation. But here's the thing. There are people even today, maybe even in this room, who are caught up in systems of religion where they're trying by their own works to do what the Pharisees did, to earn their way to God. If I just do one more thing, if I do this, if, all, if my good outweighs my bad, I'm going to get there. I'm going to make it wrongly believing some way that you can earn your way to God. Let me say this very clearly. It's a lie. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. We cannot earn our way to God. Let me give you a scenario here. And I'm going to use Dean because he lets me pick on him every so often. Although I should have asked permission, but I'm going to ask for forgiveness, Dean. Imagine today, and we'll just say or a typical um, July afternoon. Imagine you're driving on 95 and you see Dean walking on the side of 95. 
and he's got a, book, a big book bag on that's got to be 150 pounds. And you see him, and he's walking, and he's falling, and he gets up, and he's walking again, and he's falling, and he gets up, and you pull alongside of him, and you roll your window down, and you say, Dean, what are you doing? As he gets up and falls again, he looks at you and goes, I'm just resting. And he gets up and keeps doing it. You would go, no, Dean, you're not resting. You're falling. And here's the thing. This is what religion is. Religion is putting all the burdens upon yourself thinking you're going to walk with them. You fall, you fall, you fall. And then someone asks you what you're doing. You say, I'm resting. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're, you're encumbered by all the burdens and cares of religion. Don't believe it. It's a lie. In light of what we just seen, I want us to go back one chapter to Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. You don't have to go very far. It's right there. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. And so here's the picture. Jesus is talking to a people who are laboring and who are heavy laden under the weight of a rule-based approach to God. These people feel crushed by the Pharisees' yoke. Rule after rule after rule after rule. And they feel like, we can't do this. I don't know how to earn this anymore. And Jesus comes to them and look at verses 28 through 30. Because these words are beautiful. Jesus says, come to me. Understand what Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say, hey, go down the road, go down 10 houses, take a right, go another, take a left, do a good deed, um, go down another half a block, do another good deed, do this, do that, and all these things, and then eventually come back to me. No, come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And let me just be clear here. Following Jesus isn't less demanding or isn't less arduous. In fact, following Jesus could involve giving up everything and it could involve laying down your life if he asked. It could involve that. Following Jesus involves work. It involves effort. It involves obedience. But here's the point. His yoke is different. His yoke is different. His yoke is light because we're not obeying him in order to earn salvation. We're obeying him because he's already won our salvation. That's why we're obeying him. He's already won our salvation. His yoke is light because he is carrying the weight for us. Religion is deemed carrying the backpack thing. I think I'm going to make it. Christianity is Jesus coming alongside saying, Dean, give it to me. Give it to me. I can carry it. And Dean is just walking alongside, resting in Christ as Christ is holding him up. It's light because we're not just obeying a rule. We're walking with our Savior. He is our true Sabbath rest. This is the point here. Jesus is the only one who can bring the salvation the world so desperately needs. When we rest in Him, when we rest in what He has done for us, we're saying to ourselves and we're saying to the world around us who is watching us that it's not our work that saves us. We tell them it's something else. In fact, we say it's someone else who saves us. It is Jesus. Now, here's my favorite part of the Sabbath. My favorite part of the Sabbath is that the Sabbath is a shadow for something else. Sabbath is not the point and was never the point at all. The whole point of the Sabbath, get this, is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of the Sabbath. And the reason that so many are, are frantic in their religious activities 
despite the fact that they're constantly doing, 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 there are so many people, and they're caught in religion, and here's what they're, they're believing. Here's, here's what they're being told. If I do this, God will love me. If I do this, God will love me. If I do this, God will love me. And they keep doing it, and they feel a little bit of self-love, but then they feel empty again, so they've got to do something else. If I do this, God will love me. And let me just say this. Christians, we fall into it as well. We fall into it as well. And what I mean by that is this. There are days in my life where I get it, in my mind, I get it all right. That's my mind. But I get it all right. And the devotion was amazing. The prayer time was incredible. All these things happened. And I step back and I go, man, God, you love me. Woo, that was good. And then there's days where I get it all wrong. And I get it all wrong. Maybe very little time for a devotion at all. And it all goes haywire. And I look and I go, not feeling much of the love at all today, God. And here's the point. On my best day or on my worst day, God's love has not changed for me. It has not changed for me. Now, there's something to be said for as I'm seeking him and walking in relationship to him, I'm going to sense and understand his love. And I'm going to have that fellowship that I don't have when I'm not doing those things. But God's love doesn't change. Stop thinking you can earn it. What the law could not do, Jesus came and he did. And we can have rest for our weary souls because he did it. I want to end with some words from, from Charles Spurgeon. I love these words. Listen to what it says. Do not tell me that there is no rest for us till we get to heaven. We who have believed in Jesus enter into rest even now. Why should we not do so? Our salvation is complete. The robe of righteousness in which we are clad is finished. The atonement for our sin is fully made. We are reconciled to God, beloved of the Father, preserved by His grace and supplied by His providence with all that we need. We carry our burdens to Him and leave them at His feet. And let me say that again. We carry all our burdens to Him. We carry all our burdens to Him and leave them at His feet. We spend our lives in His service and we find His ways to be ways of pleasantness and His paths to be paths of peace. And yes, we have found rest unto our souls. Brothers and sisters, have you found that rest? If you are here today and you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, there is no rest for you. Oh, that today you would turn from your sin, turn from trusting in yourself or anything else, and turn to Jesus. Trust Him today as your Savior and Lord. Or, believer, in this room, maybe you've reverted back to things that look like you, act like you, and, and all of these things in, in your religious activities. And yet there's no rest in that. Oh, today that we would come back to, to Him. And find the rest that our souls so desperately need. I'm going to ask you to stand as we call the musicians down. As we enter into a time of invitation and consecration. Where we ask whatever it is that God is saying to us. May we do it. Let's pray together. Father we come before you now. Having heard your word. Having your word brought to us by your spirit, knowing that the spirit, your Holy Spirit is, you're moving right now among 
people in this room. Holy Spirit, we pray for clarity in each and every heart and life to know exactly what it is right now that you are speaking into each one, whether it be salvation, God, that you would convict that individual or individuals of their need for you and they would call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Or Holy Spirit, you would convict believers of taking what you have done for us and maybe trying to turn it back into a a works-based system. God, forgive us of that. Help us to lay that down for the sake of the rest that you want us to continue to walk in. Whatever it is today, may we find our rest in you. In Jesus' name, amen.